0: The Gerontological Society of America, meaningful lives as we age.
1: Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussions podcast episode titled Non-Pharmacological Strategies to Support Behaviors Experienced by People Living with Dementia. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to Genentech, Lilly, Azai, and Otsuka for their support on the GSA Air Toolkit for Primary Care Teams and today's podcast. My name is Jen Pittis and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, or GSA, and I'm pleased to serve as a host for today's Momentum discussion. I'm so happy to be joined by a terrific GSA member for this podcast episode. Dr. Felicia Bonds-Johnson is an assistant professor, tenure-track, at the Nell Hobson Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University and a board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner at Emory Integrated Memory Care. Welcome, Dr. Bonds-Johnson. I'm so glad that you could join me.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here today.
1: Oh, that's great. Let's go ahead and get started and jump right in to begin our discussion, Dr. Bonds-Johnson. Would you share some insights into the common behavioral symptoms associated with dementia? What are some of the symptoms and how might they present to care partners and others?
0: Well, it's a great question. I think, you know, a lot of times symptoms will depend on where someone is in the disease process when we think about dementia. And then there's also different types of dementia. But there do seem to be sort of common symptoms that we see, typically earlier in the disease process. It's common to experience some depression and anxiety, especially around the diagnosis, recognizing that right now there is no cure for dementia. And so a lot of times people wrestle with that diagnosis. As the disease progresses for some dementias and even early in the disease for other dementias, sometimes people will hallucinate or see things that aren't there, hear things that aren't there occasionally feel things on their skin that aren't actually there or have what we call these fixed beliefs or delusions. The hallucinations and delusions fall under this category of psychosis. And so we do sometimes see that with dementia. And then there's the other or last sort of common behavior I'll mention is sort of this idea of like mood instability or irritability, agitation. So whether that's verbal or physical outburst that sometimes are associated with individuals living with dementia. And so you asked me how they present. Well, for depression, uh, sometimes you see sadness. People are more tearful. Sometimes individuals don't exhibit those typical sad symptoms, and they become angry or upset. The anxiety, there's usually a lot of worry or fear. So maybe for the care partner, they're noticing in this person, uh, more concerns about different things that maybe didn't bother them before. More concerns about the future or what that will look like. Not wanting to be a burden to that care partner. With the psychosis piece, I, I sort of hinted at that. Commonly, is, it kind of depends on the relationship. But in our spousal relationships, sometimes one spouse might be cu- accused of cheating. We've seen things like thinking someone is taking something from them, stealing from them. Worried about the future, feeling like they won't be financially stable, seeing things, seeing terrible things hanging or outside. And then with that irritability, as I kind of mentioned. So sometimes it's more verbally aggressive with that care partner and even physically aggressive at times.
1: And how common are these behaviors? And you mentioned already that the stage influences what behaviors they have. So how do the likelihood of having those behaviors? Change as someone progresses in their disease. So, how common are they and how does the stage really influence the likelihood of symptoms? I
0: think, really, the commonality of these behaviors really sort of depends on the type of dementia. Oftentimes, when we hear dementia, we think a lot of times it's Alzheimer's disease, but there's also different types like Lewy body dementia, I know frontal temporal dementia. It's getting a little more publicity, I feel like, due to an actor having that diagnosis there's so because there's different types, there are different behaviors we see based on the types and then, of course, Alzheimer's disease has what we call an early onset, which is where it happens for people that are younger than that typical older adult, so sometimes we see that in people in their forties and fifties. And so, again, when you think about the age of someone, the type of dementia they have, then these symptoms are pretty common. But again, I'm going to lay out sort of a blanket statement. There's always caveats. Typically, if someone has not dealt with anxiety or depression before, Again, receiving a diagnosis like this is not uncommon in those earlier stages for them to potentially wrestle with thoughts of um, depressive thoughts and anxious thinking and need to potentially have strategies to support them as they're going through that. A lot of times, as the disease progresses, individuals will start to be less aware of their environment, less aware of what they are losing and the disease process. And we, don't always see as much anxiety and depression later on. Not to say that it doesn't happen, because in some of our clients and some of our patients that we see, that I see, we can see that happening later, but it is, I would say, less common. With psychosis piece and sometimes that agitation irritability piece, I feel like those tend to happen later, except in our Lewy body's dementia. Someone with Lewy body's dementia will hallucinate early in the early stages of the diagnosis. That's one of the key hallmarks of that diagnosis where individuals who have an Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia will often hallucinate later in the disease process or have delusions later in the disease process. Uh, So moderate to late stages. And then agitation and irritability. I feel like that can kind of happen whenever. It just kind of depends on what's going on in that person's life and how well they're able to communicate, how well they're able to deal with the diagnosis.
1: So why is it so important to detect behavioral symptoms and empower care partners and others with non-pharmacological strategies to address them?
0: You know, I think it's important because, especially when it's someone you care for, it's really hard to separate the disease from that person you know our care partners are often saying a mom or a dad or husband or wife or sister or brother and I think knowing that these symptoms these behaviors happen as a part of the disease can hopefully give them the opportunity in those moments to be a little more objective and be like I still love you mom dad brother sister aunt cousin But I recognize that this is a part of the disease process and what strategies, what tools do I have to either help minimize these behaviors and symptoms or maybe to even sometimes prevent them from happening because I'm going to ask you something a little differently or I'm going to say something a little differently than I would normally say if I was unaware that there are these non-pharmacological strategies that can help, help support the care partners.
1: So, doctor Bones Bonds-Johnson, what you just replied really makes me think about the philosophy of care. I've heard so much from you and your colleagues at Emory, and that is that you really are caring for the person with the disease and their care partners. And that really resonated in what you just shared.
0: It's true. I tell them all the time, you all are the experts. And they look at me like, "No, I'm not I'm like, yes, you are, and you are with this person day in and day out. You knew them before this disease process. You are learning them now. the observations that the care partners make or how I make my decisions, um, and how we come about developing a treatment plan together. um, so yeah, I, I'm glad it resonates because it really is truly what the integrated memory care is about, what the work that I am doing is about. It really is sort of honoring their relationship, recognizing that, again, they are the experts and we are just here to support them as as best as we can.
1: I understand that detecting and treating behavioral symptoms associated with dementia can be very complex. What accounts for that complexity?
0: Where do I begin? I think part of it is that most of the time we're dealing with what we would consider an older adult. And oftentimes, older adults are already taking other medications, already have other sort of normal disease things that happen even if they don't have any other diagnoses beyond the dementia. You know, when you think about as we age, we tend to move a little slower. You know, it might take us a little longer to do things. We aren't necessarily as cognitively sharp as we were, whether or not there is a dementia diagnosis. A lot of times individuals might have hypertension or diabetes. So then you have these other chronic illnesses that you're managing as well as trying to manage the behaviors and symptoms associated with dementia. And then because I look at families all day long, the family dynamic matters. So whether you like this person before this diagnosis of dementia, whether you all got along really well or you couldn't stand each other, like that matters when we're thinking about dementia because it's a debilitating chronic disease that will end in death at this point. And so not wanting to be a burden on the family, but recognizing that you might need some help from care partners, it's just a lot to
1: navigate. What are some general strategies that care partners and others can use to manage behavioral symptoms associated with dementia?
0: You know, I think the first thing, and I'm huge about, um, what I like to call self-reflection. And so I think both the care partner and the person living with dementia to the best of their ability while they still can have to determine how they're going to navigate these new behaviors. So again, if it's anxiety or depression or depressive symptoms, what is it about this diagnosis? And there's a lot that makes that person anxious and, and or depressed. And are there things we can do Now, while that person hopefully has been diagnosed early enough, that will help alleviate some of those depressive symptoms and that anxiety. Is there a trip that that person always wanted to take but never felt like there was enough time? Is it that I don't have my affairs in order and that's making me anxious? So then sitting down, figuring out who will do what within the family, where things will go, thinking about that advanced care planning and getting that all set up while you can, you know, if it is psychosis and not recognizing um, if what I'm seeing is actually real or not, how does that care partner then have the conversation with that person? We often say sometimes it's just okay to go into their world. So if the older adult, the, I shouldn't say older adult, because again, not everyone that's older has <laughs> diagnosis of dementia. But again, the person living with dementia, if they are seeing things and hearing things that aren't there, if it's not distressing to them. So for example, maybe they see a cat crawling on the floor. It might be that you ask, well, what color is the cat? Or what is the cat doing as the care partner without saying things like, oh no, I don't see a cat. Do you, there's no cat there. And so sometimes it's about a a reframing with how we engage with that person living with dementia. It takes a lot of practice. I've been doing this for a while. And it sometimes feels like you're lying to that person, and sometimes we might be. I'm still hoping God forgives me for the little white lie I tell individuals. I'm thinking of a particular scenario when I worked in a long-term care facility, and this lady was there for rehab. She did have a diagnosis of dementia, and she came up to me, and my shift was ended, and she said I was working as a psychiatric consultant in this long-term care facility, and she was like, do you have a car? Because I need to get out of here. Oh, no, ma'am. I don't have a car. Well, how did you get here? I walked. You did? Yes, ma'am, I walked. (laughs) Well, is there a bus station? No, no, no. Not in this small town. We don't have a bus station. And we didn't. So that wasn't a lie. Um, But she was like, well, if you need to take a taxi, then I will take, ma'am, there are no taxis in this town. So things like that. Like, I know, it's terrible. But she was so smart. And she had all of these great questions. And I could not help her escape. And to say to her, I'm sorry, you have to stay here because you need rehab and this is what is best for you. I did try that initially. It was not working. And so in that scenario, I did lie. I do hope I (laughs) am forgiven for it. But it eventually was enough for her to say, I guess I'm here for the night. And I said, yes, ma'am, I think you will be, but I'll see you tomorrow. And so again, we I don't always get it right, but we do have to be okay with trying to have that dialogue and that conversation with the person living with dementia because they're still really, really smart and they still have a lot of great ideas. And I have learned that shutting them down completely or making... I don't want to say making them feel dumb, but sometimes saying things that don't land well can just cause further distress. And so, yeah, I've just gotten really creative with how I answer questions. But I said all that to say, you know, it's just really important, I think, if we're not interested in medication or wanting to try other strategies before we move into medications to think about what we're saying to the person living with dementia and how we're navigating that relationship.
1: Well, you mentioned several specific behaviors when we began our discussion, when we began our discussion, including anxiety and depressive symptoms. And I think that often clinicians or care partners don't consider these when they're thinking about behaviors related to dementia. Would you give some insights into de- how you detect these symptoms and then offer some specific strategies that you find most useful for care partners and others to address these?
0: Yeah. Um, I mentioned the one very briefly about like not having your... Affairs in order, but usually it's something as simple as I, I call and every time I call, mom is crying. Or when I go into the room, you know, I've walked into her room and I see that she's tearful. Um, when I ask her what's wrong, she's upset. I think earlier in the disease process, when that person living with dementia is still able to communicate with you, it's in those moments you can find out, is it about the disease process? And for some for some clients it is. I, I'll never f- probably forget this one client that I was um working with, and she was like, I did all the things right. Like I ate well, I exercised, I didn't smoke, you know, I did all of the things I needed to do for my health, and I still have a diagnosis of dementia. And for her, it was really, really distressing. And I And you get it, right? Like you you can understand and empathize with how they feel and what they're going through. And I think, you know, she had an amazing husband that would be there and supported her. And so in those moments, just validating their feelings, sometimes it's like, yeah, I get it. I would be the exact same way. I'd be very frustrated and very upset and distraught. And so I think, you know, validating someone's feelings is the first thing. The other thing is that the care partners also can't forget their feelings. And in validating that person living with dementia, also remember that you have to validate how you're feeling, what you're going through, and making sure that you have some sort of outlet.
1: And then you also discussed psychosis and, and mood instability and agitation or aggression. GSA has several resources on agitation and Alzheimer's, and I certainly refer our listeners to those on geron.org slash brain health. But I wonder if you could share some insights about detecting and addressing mood instability and psychosis.
0: Yeah, I think there are some great resources. So thank you for mentioning that about the GSA resources. The other thing, I think one of the probably hardest challenges is when, whether it's a family member, you know, someone's in a long-term care facility and it's the facility staff reaching out. Oftentimes I get things like, Mr. Miss So-and-so did this we need a medicine or we need help and one of the hardest things to decipher <laughs> is that i don't i don't know what to do anxiety depression kind of look alike mood instability psychosis depending on what's going on or agitation can look alike and so without the context of knowing what is happening it is hard to figure out strategies to support them um we're not talking about medication but i think this example that i'm going to give is one that might help with that. So I had a daughter who was caring for her mom at home who has Alzheimer's disease. And she said, my mom has been up for like four days straight. And I was like, okay. So when I'm hearing the message, I'm thinking, okay, we got to get her to bed early. Maybe we need to do her workout a little more in the morning. Can we get her up, get her active, and then she'll sleep really good at night. Well, what she said to me was, and she would occasionally... Hear voices and see things, and we called them her visitors. And so I said, "Miss Saunders, are you having? Have your visitors been by lately?" And she was like, "You know, I cannot get my baby to go to sleep." And I said, "Well, tell me more. My baby has been up crying for three days straight, or four days straight." And I said, "I looked at her daughter, and I said, well, part of the reason your mom is not sleeping is because she believes that her child is awake crying, and as a mom," I totally get it. If my child is not sleeping, then I'm not sleeping. And so the reason this person, this lady living with dementia, wasn't sleeping was because in her mind, she heard her baby crying. Her baby had been crying for days, and she was not going to go to sleep without ensuring that her baby. I went to sleep. In this case, we did have to do some medication management. And then once we did, things were okay. But I said all that to say that we have to figure out the context. You know, somebody could be aggressive and agitated really because they're depressed. And if we can improve the mood, then that agitation and the aggression lead. Someone could be having mood instability because, you know, they have this fixed belief that their spouse is cheating on them or that their spouse did something wrong to them and having the two of them come together and sit down and talk, sometimes can alleviate some of those thoughts. Sometimes I can't, but just recognizing that there's always this context that we need to understand and then trying to find strategies that support them once we know the context. Well,
1: this has been a terrific discussion and I really appreciate your time. Some of the things that I heard that really stood out to me were that the behaviors are changing over time and that a stage may or may not impact those depending on the type of of dementia. But I really heard that message of honoring the individual and their care partner and the importance of the context in which behaviors happen, really understanding that situation is such a vital part of the overall assessment so you can strategize together to hopefully prevent the behaviors or at least address them more appropriately in the future. What are some things that I that you'd like to leave our listeners with a key point or two.
0: I'll say that the one phrase, comment we hear often is that if you've seen one person with dementia, you've seen one person with dementia. And so really taking the time to get to know the person living with dementia that you're supporting, what is it, what is in there that is still in there that was their personality before? And then one of those things that have changed and how do we work together to still honor that person, recognizing that this disease process has changed them from who they originally were.
1: Well, that's a great point to end with, I was honoring the person. So doctor Buns Bunch-Johnson, thank you so much again for joining me and for sharing your insights and sharing those important strategies that care partners and others can use. Thank you also to those listening to the episode of the GSA Momentum Discussion Podcast. We hope you found it informative and enjoyable.
0: The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org. G-E-R-O-N.org.